the organization that we were that we came into to Indonesia with basically dissolved, and so um, and they hadn't formulated a new new organization yet. So we okay. were, we were kind of in a way we were we were kind of orphaned like the day after we arrived. <laughs> Hey, Islanders, and welcome to episode 131 of the Commando Voice. Today I speak with a pilot with Wycliffe Bible Translator. Please welcome Josh Harrington. Hi, I'm Brandon Erickson, and you're listening to the Commando Voice podcast, where I interview folks around Commando Island and beyond. If you want to stay up to date on events, businesses, and even hear a little history of this area, Subscribe to this podcast and share with your friends. Thanks for listening. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Camino Voice, where we release a new episode every Tuesday. Uh, how is your guys' week going? Um, for those of you who don't know, we just survived our opening weekend at uh, the Camino Scoops. Um, so we're back in business. Uh, it's, it's reopened. Uh, we kicked off this year with a free kid scoop for kids 12 and under. So hopefully you guys got to participate in that. If not, we hope to bring it back next year, depending on how everyone responds. But it seems like everyone is pretty happy with it. Um, so that was a whirlwind of a trip, um, trying to get all that ready last week. So that was my week. Hope you guys have a good week. Um, and uh, I'd love to hear from you guys. Uh, remember, it's voice at commandocommons.com. Send me an email. I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts on the episodes, uh, any, I don't know, new guests, ideas you have, um, and just make sure you guys are still out there, you know? Um, <laughs> anyways, uh, this episode, we got to speak with Josh Harrington, um, and for those of you who don't know anything about mission aviation, um, which I expect a lot of people that aren't in the church world probably um, are less familiar with everything that goes into it. Uh, mission, mission aviation is always interesting because it's, it's so much more like it's one, it's a really long road to get there. Uh, most missionary pilots I know, um, have spent over between five to 10 years before they, when they decide this is what I want to do to when they actually get to the field and get to start practicing that. So it's a very long road to get there. Um, a lot of commitment, a lot of hardship to get there, but um, man, the, the adventures, the things they get to do out there are just insane. Um, so Josh Harrington actually grew up on Camano Island. Um, so he's a local boy, um, but no longer. Uh, so he and his family are serving in, uh, Papua, um, which for many of you, uh, probably know about our, one of our most popular coffees, the, uh, Papua New Guinea coffee. Uh, uh, it's on the other side of the island of that. Um, so just to give you a quick kind of overview of Papua, um, it's very mountainous. There's places along there that you can't get to by road. It's only by flying. Um, so, uh, Josh does a lot of flying in and out of very tight, difficult places. Um, and so anyways, we get into all of that and more, including his adventures of getting there, um, and all that. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Josh Harrington. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Commando Voice. Today, I'm here with a Wycliffe Bible translator and pilot. Welcome to the podcast, Josh Harrington. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So before we get started, tell us a little bit about Josh. Yeah, hi. Uh, I grew up here on the island, and my dad was a general contractor. He built uh, small homes in the Stanwood and the Camino Island area, 
and uh, we lived off of uh, Cross Island. He had a house up there that he had, he had built. Nice. Very cool. So y- you grew up on the island then. Um, what, what kind of, um, <clears throat> just to put it into a time frame, kind of what was your growing up years like uh, year-wise? Oh, yeah. I, uh, I was born in 1980, and so uh, I was in high school in the 90s here at Stanwood High School. Okay. Nice. So how did you, how's the island and Stanwood changed over that time period? Oh, uh, yeah, just, yeah, there's a lot more people and, and uh, a lot more homes. And uh, you got this cool uh, Terry Corners place now. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so growing up on Camano then, what were kind of your, what was kind of your day-to-day life? What, what did you do down there? Oh, growing up? Well, uh, I, I played basketball when I was in uh, middle school and high school. And uh, my parents had about five acres in the woods. And so I just played in the woods and uh, built street forks and stuff like that. Uh, my, par- my grandparents, they had a house down by the beach, so... We, you know, in the summers, we play at the beach. Okay. Yeah, went crabbing, fishing, stuff like that. Nice. So how many generations have been on Camano then? Uh, my, my grandparents, they moved here back in the, I think it was the 60s. Okay. They, yeah, they were from Seattle, moved up to retire. And uh, um, so I guess it's second generation. Nice. Very cool. So did you guys, um, after your grandparents moved, did you guys, where were you guys living? Or I guess, where were your parents at before they uh, start, moved over onto Camano? Yeah, my uh, um, my dad he was he grew up on in West Seattle, and then my mom she grew up here on the island at the Country Club is where she um, grew up at. Okay, yeah. nice. So then you guys moved here, and then were you born here and, and everything? Yeah, I was born at uh, Everett General, um, but yeah, I pretty much lived here the whole time. Okay, yeah. very yeah. cool. Yeah, the uh, the island's gone through a little bit of changes since then. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, all right. Very cool. So then, um, so as you were growing up and everything, you said you played basketball um, and you went to Sandwood High as yep, well? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so as you were kind of getting near the end of high school, what were you kind of looking at as far as looking ahead? Yeah, well, after, after high school um, at Church Camino Chapel, a former missionary pilot uh, came up to me and said, um, if you consider mission aviation, and I, had nothing, I didn't know anything about mission aviation. And so there was a... Uh, um, he said there was a demonstration at the airport, Arlington Airport, mm-hmm. and uh, um, it was called, at the time it was called Missions at the Airport that Wycliffe was was putting on the demonstration. They had these little air, aircraft called Helo Couriers, and so I went out there to the airport, and I met a Wycliffe missionary pilot, and I asked him what is it they, that they do, and he said that uh, um, there's people all over the world that are completely isolated from the outside world. The only way in and out of most of their villages is by air, and so he said what we do is we fly in out of their villages, and we take, uh, um, we take basically missionaries and community developers and things like that so they can have um, literacy as well as uh, community development stuff like clean water and things like that. And I thought, hey, that would be kind of fun to be a part of that. Yeah. So when I started flight training. <clears throat> okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. So was that when you were in high school then? It was right after high school. Right. I had just graduated from high school. Okay. And, uh, yeah, it was about the year. I think it was the year after. Okay. So was there anything... Uh, prior to that that you had ever thought about aviation or uh, were you looking at like engineering or anything like that uh well i had a friend that was taking uh <clears throat> flight lessons back in uh, uh back in high school and uh, i went up with him one time in the back seat of the airplane and they were out practicing stalls and they, the instructor and, the, and he didn't tell us what they were doing <laughs> so the airplane was kind of all over the sky and i thought it was pretty fun to yeah, to ride along in the back. That was like my first introduction to small aircraft. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's kind of a make it or break it thing. It's either like, <laughs> this is really cool, or this is terrifying, and I'm never doing this again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nice. So, um, okay, so then you you decided that this is kind of a path you wanted to take then. 
Uh, where did it go from there? Well, I, uh, there's a, um, a Bible college called Moody, Moody Bible College back in Chicago, and they, uh, um, they provide missionary, or they pr- provide training for missionary pilots and mechanics. And so I, I applied to them, and I also applied to a school in Arlington, Arlington Airport called the Mission Aviation Training Academy. Okay. And uh, um, I, was, I was accepted by, at the flight school in Arlington, so I <clears throat> started my flight training training there okay and uh um it was just a flight school and so i got all my fa certification as well as some training to become a missionary pilot at the airport out there okay and what does all that involve because that's slightly different than your standard just going the commercial pilot route right yeah yeah it's, it's similar but uh um for if you want to be a missionary pilot you have to also become a aircraft mechanic mm-hmm. and so i went to Everett community college <clears throat> and they had a facility at Payne field that you can get your amp license your 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 airframe and power plant your aircraft maintenance license and that was a two-year program out there okay and so um but yeah the training that you know the really the track to become a missionary pilot was very similar to the track to become a, a commercial pilot okay nice so then as you were kind of going through all these trainings and things um you said you had applied at moody but you didn't end up going there um as you're doing your aviation training and stuff then are you looking at were you then starting to apply to other uh, bible colleges no, yeah, as soon as um soon, as soon as I was accepted by Mission Aviation Training Academy, it just kind of made sense. It was it was it was more affordable, it was local, and so I so I basically canceled the the uh, application with Moody and just it just stayed on with with Mata. Okay. And so did you do all your uh Bible training stuff with them as well then? Yeah, I um I'd actually I'd spend a year and uh doing Bible training the year prior um when I um it was right after high school. It was the year after high school that I did some Bible training in California at this place called Calvary Chapel Bible College okay. in Murrieta. And then I did one semester there, and then I did one semester in Austria. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, they had, a, they, had a, they, had, they had basically a, cam- a, what, a satellite campus in Austria. So we stayed in, in a little, uh, um, it, was, it was a chalet on a lake, and we, it was pretty cool. And we took some trips <laughs> to like Romania and Hungary and Italy and Germany. So it was pretty fun, just you know, traveling around that part of part of Europe. Yeah. So you said we. So at that point, were you guys were you married then? No. Sorry. Yeah. I'm just, oh. Okay. Yeah. No. I, at, at that point, I was single. So okay. Saying, yeah, yeah. Okay. Just me. Yep. Nice. So then, when you were over there, um, you guys, you said you got to visit a bunch of the other countries and stuff like that. What were kind of the highlights of visiting over there? Uh, for me, it was probably we went we went to Romania. Um, yeah, the, the orphanages there were were pretty crazy, and then they had a lot of uh, coal mines. And so the, the the general track for a for a young person was if the parents couldn't afford their their children they'd put them in these orphanages, and then you know after the orphanages a lot of a lot of them just went straight into working in the coal mines, and it was just kind of it was just the first time I've seen what life was like for someone that wasn't you know really as privileged as you know a lot of us here in America. Yeah, it was pretty. Uh, it was it was eye opening for me. Yeah. So did that kind of help? continue to feed what you were already had started the journey you were already on with Mata and stuff? Yeah, it did. Yeah. I mean, I, if I could, you know, be of, you know, of service to other people and be, be a blessing to them, I, you know, I'd like to, like to try to do it. Yeah. Um, so then what kind of happened as you were going through your training, uh, you said you went to, you started doing the, uh, the Calvary Chapel, uh, college stuff and then overseas. Um, what kind of what happened after that? Um, well, yeah, well, yeah, it was after, that's after I got back from, from Austria. That's when I talked to the missionary pilot about, about jars, and that's when I got... Oh, got it. Okay. Yeah, sorry, that was, I'm going to clarify the timeline there. Yeah. But uh, the, uh, um, yeah, and it took me about, 
let's see, I, 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 my flight training took about two years, and, my, and I did it at the same time as my maintenance training. So I was, I was pretty busy doing the maintenance training during the day and then the flight training in the evenings and the weekends. Okay. And, uh, um, and so, yeah, it took me about, what, about two years to get done with the flight and the maintenance, and then I uh, continued on with an online school called Utah Valley University. Okay. And I got a degree in um, aviation, you know, basically an aviation bachelor of science. Yep. And, uh, and at, at the time that I was working at a, a flight school down in Paintfield, just instructing people to learn how to fly. Okay. Yeah. Nice. The, um, so is it required to have an aviation, like a full degree then to, to do the work? No. Yeah. I mean, they, they do want to see some, some, some Bible experience, but, uh, or Bible, Bible college experience. But uh, as far as become a mission, missionary pilot or mechanic, um, you just have to have your, your uh, FA ratings and some experience. Okay. So what kind of drew you to, to finish out the degree then? Um, well, yeah, my dad was actually really encouraging me. He said, you know, if you're going to go overseas and, you know, fly, fly in the jungle, it's like you really need to, to leave with a Bachelor of Science. And so I thought, you know, that's probably a good, a good advice. And so that's what I – so I was able to um, do the online degree while I was working as a flight instructor at Painfield and trying to build experience. Okay. Nice. So once you graduated from that, then what, where, where did it go from there? Well, I, uh, um, I applied to some, uh, commercial operators around the country to fly, fly cargo for, you know, they call it, um, charter, charter mm-hmm. on demand service. And so, uh, I got hired by a company down in California to fly, um, FedEx boxes around. And okay. So I, so I flew in California and I said, yeah, California, Nevada, and Utah. And then also in, in Texas for, I did that for about two years. Okay. And was that to just build up hours? Yeah, that, that was to just gain, basically gain experience for the, to getting ready to fly over in, in, over with, with Wycliffe. Yeah. Okay. So, um, real quick then. Uh, so I always think of Wycliffe as like the Bible translator. Like I don't think of them as pilots or other things. So how does that kind of all break down within Wycliffe? Well, I mean, Wycliffe, they, they support, uh, or they have a couple of aviation programs all over the world. And uh, there's, you know, a lot of their more remote locations. The only way in and out of their villages is by, is by air. And so, um, and so in Papua, there's probably about 260 different languages in, just in Papua. And the region of Papua is about the size of Texas. Okay. And so uh, um, it's, a, it's a really uh, um, rugged territory, and there's a lot of mountains, a lot of swamps. And uh, there's also a lot of history of just in, uh, intertribal, uh, you know, violence. And so it's really separated people, causing all these different languages. And so the interior of Papua, there's, um, there's really no roads, and then the rivers are pretty treacherous, and they don't really connect well to other villages. And so the, really the only way in and out of these locations is either, either on foot or, or by air. Okay. And so um, because of that, I mean, because Wycliffe <clears throat> is trying to reach all these different language groups in Papua, uh, they didn't have a flight program. So um, they have a flight program over there in Papua, and we've got about, I think we have, right now we have six aircraft, and we fly in out of these little little villages. And so we, we pretty much exist there in order to, to provide access to all these different villages. Okay. And there's I think there's like four or five other locations throughout the world that have similar type environment where aviation is needed in order to basically provide access to these these villages. Okay. So does uh, does Wycliffe then... Like, are they doing translations and stuff with some of these people? Is that part of it as well then? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's their, main, their main drive. Um, so I just had a friend that he started a work about, uh, I think it was about 10 years ago, and he landed in this village, and nobody spoke um, English, and nobody spoke Indonesian. They only spoke this yet, yet the language. Okay. And uh, um, so he went in there, and he learned this, this <clears> local <throat> language, and he was able to translate, you know, he found a couple guys that were pretty good with um, 
with you know basically with language they're skilled with language and he, and they helped um, they helped him translate the Yetfa language into or basically the you know the Bible into the Yetfa language the New Testament okay and so uh, um, but if if they don't have and a lot of in a lot of cases they don't have um, you know anything written down in their own language yet so he had to establish a, an alphabet oh wow yeah so he so they established an alphabet for this this language group and uh, and then they even um, he had to do a lot of literacy because you know people if they don't have an alphabet they can't be read yet so yeah. so it's it's really so the literacy that they that they give to these people um, that are just you know isolated out out you know these remote locations are it's it's huge it's, it's allowing them to get education it's allowing them you know their their next generation or even the current generation to uh, basically engage the local economy better yeah it really gives a lot of people hope and you know in, in a future even in even in this even in the pop in the the Papuan economy. Yeah, that's great. So then, um, so you were doing uh, uh, the charter flying for FedEx for a couple years then. Um, then at the end of that, um, what kind of prompted you to move on to the next thing? Well, I, I, I did the, um, I was flying for the charter outfit in order to get experience for, for Wycliffe. Mm-hmm. And they have, a, they have an evaluation process that you have to go through back in North Carolina. And so I went back there for the two-week evaluation, and they determined that I was my skills were capable enough <clears throat> to become a missionary um, pilot mechanic. So then, at that point, then I then I left. I you know basically resigned from my job here in the states, and I went to go work. You know, basically work for for Wycliffe. Okay, nice. So um, a lot of like there's a lot of mission air aviation or not aviation, but mission programs and and you know that that are doing things um, for for Wycliffe then. Is it more of a, um, like, do you have to go around and start raising support at that point? Or what's that kind of look like for you then? Yeah. No, all, all of us that serve over there in Papua, we, uh, um, yeah, churches and friends and, and family, you know, basically they send us. So we have to raise our own support to mm-hmm. go. Yep. And then um, but pretty much they, <clears throat> what, what we do is we raise the support and people will send that money into Wycliffe. Okay. And then from that money, then Wycliffe will then provide us the funds for living over there. Okay. Nice. So then... How long did that take you once you decided that you were able to quit the charter job then? How did long did it take you to start going around and, and gather everything so you could actually take off? Yeah, well, in the, uh, when I started my, my training with, with Wycliffe, um, I met um, Aunt, Aunt, my wife, Amber. Her name at the time was Amber Cunningham. Okay. And so um, right at when we, down, we got done with the training, we got married. And after, after we got married, they wanted us to be in the States for about a year. Okay. And so at the end of the year, it just worked out that we had our support all raised up and we were ready to go. So we... We got our visas to go to Indonesia on, I think it was like two or three days after our, our first anniversary. Okay. So we got on a wow. plane, went over to, to Jakarta for language school. Okay. Yeah. Nice. So how did that go then? Uh, it was pretty crazy. Uh, we got to Jakarta and we did like a, a one, well, a four week orientation in Jakarta. And at the end of our orientation, they says, well, your language school is in another town called Bandung. It's <clears> about a three or four hour bus ride from Jakarta. We didn't know which direction it was, and we, didn't, and we had not studied Indonesian before we left, and so we didn't know language, and so we um, we didn't really know how we were going to get there. But we just happened to uh, meet up with another guy that was going back to Bandung to like basically pack up his house and, and leave. And so we hitched a ride with him and went up to Bandung, and he dropped us off, and he says, "Well, I was running this house because he was he had, he had just finished language school and." He was actually going on, on to Papua. Okay. He says, if you want to just basically talk to the landlord and just rent rent the house after me, because you, you can do that. So we we talked to the, he talked to the landlord because we didn't know any of the Indonesian yet. And yeah. Basically, we we paid him rent for I think it was six months or something like that. 
and then our then our our coworker left, and we were we were left here in uh, um, in Bondu in this little village. Yeah. And uh, um, he he made an agreement with the next door neighbor who had a little moped, and he said, um, "You can you, just, you basically give him five bucks a month, and you can borrow this guy's moped." <laughs> okay. And so, so our coworker drove off, and we're <laughs> we're in the middle of nowhere. Oh, not middle of nowhere, but we're in the middle of Bondun, but we don't know where we're at. We don't, we don't we can't speak Indonesian at all. And so I go over to the um, um, the neighbor, and I, I didn't know one word. Key was kunchi. Okay. And so I just went. I just kind of grunted at my neighbor. I said kunchi. And he, and he handed me the keys to his bike, and then Amber and I went down into the town. We found a Pizza Hut, and we had Pizza Hut that night for dinner that kind of, kind of, calmed us down a little bit. Wow. <laughs> okay. So did you guys uh, did like? It doesn't sound like you went with. There was no group or anything. It was just they just sent you over there and were like figure it out. Yeah. Well, we were we were basically coming in. I think it was it was 2008 during the financial crisis, and so there okay. was a lot of people that had go had to go home, and then there was also. Uh, um, the organization that we were that we came in to, to Indonesia with basically dissolved, and so um, and they hadn't formulated a new new organization yet. So we okay. were, we were kind of in a way we were we were kind of orphaned like the day after we arrived. <laughs> but we had we had a plan. I mean, we had um, in a basically we were scheduled to go to a language school that was already set up, and so um, we just had to we just reported the language school in a, in a week or two, and we just started learning the language there. Okay. So we, well, we figured it out once. Once we kind of got the language down a little bit, and we met some more people, and it wasn't quite so so nuts. Yeah, <laughs> but that's crazy that you guys didn't have like housing and all that set up for you guys, or like a plan at least. Yeah, there was no plan. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Bondun is it's a I mean it's a city, and so like e- even if you had, you go find a hotel, you could probably find a hotel pretty easily. Yeah, but we didn't know. I mean, it was our you know we're in our mid twenties and just trying <laughs> to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Crazy. So then you guys start getting into language school so you can actually talk, <laughs> talk to everybody. And, yeah. uh, how was that for you guys? Did you guys pick it up pretty, pretty quick? Oh, um, well, yeah, yeah. Both Amber and I aren't super, super gifted in, in language, at least as, 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 as much as other people are there. But yeah, we, we picked it up well <clears throat> enough to be able to get around and we met some other people and we were able to uh, see, see and do some cool stuff in, in Java and uh, yeah, it was it was a, it was a great experience. I really really enjoyed it. After I think we were there for about nine nine months. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Yep. So you guys finally start figuring all that out and get it all um, together, and then you guys start get, coming near the end of language school. And you said you were kind of orphaned uh, organizationally at that point. So what? How did you guys know what the next step was after you guys were done with uh, language school? Well, we were we were still planning on going. I mean, the organization that that basically was going to take care of our, our orientation—that's the one that was that dissolved. But um, we're when when we're over there, we uh, we work with uh, it's a nonprofit organization. They call it Yayasan, uh, called y- Yajasi, and Yajasi was was still there. And so after language school, we just went to Papua, just got on a plane and flew out to Papua, and I and I worked with Yajasi as a pilot mechanic. Okay. And uh, my wife, she worked at a local international school and it was the same thing as the international school there is a nonprofit organization and so then they teach missionary kids you know grades kindergarten through through high school okay so, and so she taught sixth grade i think it was sixth grade math and english okay was that her background prior to going over yeah she she was going going with Wycliffe to be a school teacher okay and so yeah so she was uh, trained as a school teacher very cool so you guys finally make it over there then um so just for again for context um, how long was it then that you guys decided that you would 
to start training with uh, in Arlington to when you actually got boots on the ground in Papua? I think my, my first flight was in September of 99, and then we got to Papua in, let's see, June of 2008. Okay. Yeah. Then we, then we got, or actually we got to, <clears throat> sorry, we got to language school in June 2008, and we got to Papua in April of 2009. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's something that, um, I know there's a lot of uh, career paths and stuff like that that people take, you know, if you're doing your doctorate or something like that, where they, they take, you know, eight years or whatever to get to there. Um, but consistently, when I've talked to people who have done any sort of mission aviation, um, you know, I've, I've had a couple of friends that have been very passionate about doing that. And it's this, at least that 10 year, like, is like a minimum of what they've done. And it's just, that's such a long amount of time to get to where you're wanting to do. Oh, Yeah. No, it's, I mean, the, op, um, the flying over there is really hazardous, and so it requires, you know, some, you know, some life experiences as well as some, you know, some aviation skills and experience and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's good to not have someone just fresh out of college head over there. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, as you guys are kind of continuing to build towards the point where you guys finally get to get to Papua, um, you know, that's, again, 10 years is a fairly long amount of time. What is it that... Um, you know, were there times, moments where you were like, I'm not sure if this is still the right thing or moments of doubt or just discouragement? Yeah, yeah, we've had plenty of those. Um, living in Papua, it's uh, still a developing nation, so we've, uh, or a region. So we, uh, um, yeah, we, there's been, you know, social unrest while we're there. We've been, you know, illness, malaria. Um, and then this, this last uh, time we were, we just, we were, we spent four, we just got back from a four-year term over there. Okay. And about midway through the term, there was a, a lot of rain. I think it was about eight inches in one night or something like that. And then there was a landslide that basically you know, choked off a river that created like an earth dam. Wow. And then it filled up with water and then just all let loose all at the same time. And it basically, you know, landslide went through our town. We lived a little bit further down off the mountain, so we didn't get the, <laughs> um, you know, like the rocks and, you know, the, 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 you know the, with the more of the violent flow of water. But we got the uh, um, the mud and kind of like to basically settled in our house, and so yeah, our we had about three feet of mud in our yard, and our cars were buried in mud, and our house there's wow. mud and water in our house and all that kind of stuff, and so we uh, um, yeah we thought that it was pretty much I mean the house was kind of unlivable like you know there's you know we had to step out of the house to get you know on, on the mud and our cars didn't work anymore. I think my motorcycle was completely buried in the mud. Oh my! There word. was like one little handle sticking <laughs> up out of the mud. But we. Uh, you know, and I, I told my wife, I was like, I think this is it. I mean, like, we're, you know, like, we don't have a place to stay. We know we don't have, you know, vehicles anymore. It's going to cost a lot of money to fix all this. And she said, well, let's just try, try to see if we can get it fixed. And so we did. We, we uh, my neighbor, he had like a little, he hired a little excavator. He's an Indonesian neighbor. He hired a little ex- excavator. And I went over to him. I said, hey, would you be willing to help us <clears throat> dig out our yard? And he, he said, he said, yeah, sure, he, he would. So once, once he got done with my neighbor's house. And, uh, um, so I think the excavator and I think I, I, I rented like five dump trucks. It was like 500 bucks a day or something like that. Okay. It, was, it was really cheap. Yeah. Um, for, you know, comparatively. And I th- we, we ended up taking out about 200 loads of mud out of, out of our yard. <laughs> wow. And, and we took our car to a, um, to a maintenance shop over there and they took all the interior out. They took the engine apart. They took the transmission apart. They took everything apart basically. And I think it cost us about. It was about a thousand dollars to do all that. Oh uh, wow! Work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it was and even crazier. They they ended up getting it back together, and it and it works works fine today. <laughs> but yeah, I mean they they took everything apart on it to say the mud was everywhere, and the motorcycle the motorcycle I think cost me fifty bucks, but they took that completely apart and put it back together again. 
and it's still it's still running today. I mean, it was the yeah. I mean, there was mud coming out of the exhaust when I oh my <laughs> word, it was bad. But yeah, no. So we we were able to dig out, and uh, yeah, I mean, so we yeah we thought I thought that was it, but yeah, we were able to continue on. Wow. So um, how did uh, how did COVID hit over there? Yeah, we were we were there dur- during COVID, and uh, um, we started hearing rumors of you know this this virus or whatever, and uh, Papua ended up shutting down the province, and so they said you know no flights in or out, and then there was also no boat traffic in or out. So if you were if you were on the island, you were you were there, and if you're off, you couldn't couldn't get on. Wow. And, and then the same thing for the interior villages. So we we've got probably about. Um, Sorry, we got we got about twelve different people that we serve, or twelve different um, expat teams on on the island that we serve interior. Okay, and so they were they were most of those most of them were were stuck where they were at, and so as far as like medevac services and food and supply, it was just you know they they were allowing that, but we couldn't get them out. So, uh, we and then they shut the cities down, so just there was no there was no, uh, um, no, no you couldn't be out on the road like wow. it, and they the military pretty much shut it all down. But they let, since we're, I guess they said essential services or whatever, they let us continue working there. And yep. so, so they gave us a little, a little sticker that we could put on our car. That we oh, my word. Basically drive down these empty streets and go through all these military roadblocks and, and, you know, get to work and be able to, yeah, and we still were able to serve in the interior community. The first couple of flights that we took in, you know, the, basically the resupply flights, not the teams that we support, but we also support the, just the local population there. Yeah. Um, we, we'd land with a full full load of rice and, and food and all that, and they didn't want the stuff to come off the airplane. So even out in the middle of the jungle where there's no internet, so they they knew about this virus that was going through the world. Yeah. And no one really understood. At the time, it was really early on, no one really knew exactly how severe it was and all yep. that. And so they, they wouldn't let the pilot get out, and they wouldn't let the pilot, like, take all the, the food supplied out. Wow. So they had so the pilot had to basically turn around and just take off again with a plane full of rice. Oh my and word! So, and so they, uh, but then slowly they were able to educate people. It's like you know, it's it's fine. You know that you know we're not gonna, you're not gonna get sick based upon just you know, a box of rice or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And so it wasn't quite that that biohazard or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. So yeah, but then yeah, then I think they were closed down for, they were, we were like that for about was it three months I think. So there's no in or out tr- transportation for about th- about three months. Okay. And then the. The, the U.S. Embassy, they ended up sending a flight into Papua to take out any of the higher-risk individuals. And so, um, and they said, they told us, that when the plane came in, they said, you know, this is, you know, you don't expect another plane to come in for another six months. Yeah. And so, um, we decided to stay to, you know, so we'd be part of the work over there. Yeah. But it was, you know, other things, not just getting sick from the, the virus, but also just, you know, living in Papua, getting malaria or dengue or whatever. Just really, you're cutting yourself off to medical, yeah, medical help at that point. And so they, they do have hospitals there, and, and they can help you to a certain degree, <clears throat> depending upon how how severe it is. So yeah, we decided to stay, and you know, everybody was healthy and everybody was fine, and it worked out pretty good. Yeah, wow, yeah, it's it's crazy as you hear different countries and. Um, Everyone kind of handle it in a different way, but like some of the more isolated countries, they were able to just kind of close everything down. Um, and yeah. yeah, that's crazy though to to be in that. You know, we had our it was weird being here, but like again, you're still here. So oh wow, cool. Um, <clears throat> so then, um, then you guys have so. When you guys went over, you said you went over in uh, 2009 is when you actually landed in Papua. Yep. 
Um, then how long have kind of each of your stints been? Let's see. The We were over there the first time for about three years. And then the second time we, w- we went over, we were over there for, I think it was almost two years. But then we, um, we came back to the States so we could have our first, first child. Okay. And then we went back over to Indonesia and we were over there for two years again. And then we came back to have our second child. Okay. And then we came, and then we went back over, what is that, the third time? We were there for four years. Okay. Yeah. And no kid this time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Coming up. (laughs) When you guys said you're coming back, did everyone go, really? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yep. Nice. So then, um, was this something that, again, we've talked about this a little bit, but like, when you look back over where you guys have, you know, where you came from on Camino and then getting to where you guys are now, is that something you guys had, or you had ever thought like, I want to be mission pilot and I want to do this thing. Or was it just like, it's crazy when you look back over your life? Yeah, no, it it is. I mean, both, both Amber and I, we, I mean, my wife, she grew up in Texas and I grew up here on Camino Island. So we don't really have a lot of cross-cultural living experience. And, uh, um, I, I never would have thought that we would have been, you know, serving, serving and living over there for the last 13 years. It's, it's pretty, uh, but we, we love it and we're, and we want to go back and, and we don't really have any plans of, of stopping, but yeah, it's definitely have been, been an, a pretty major adjustment. We were still adjusting to the culture over there, trying to learn it and try not to, um, by, by this point we should have it figured out, but we're still, we're still learning. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, what are the, what would you say are some of the biggest cultural differences when you guys are over there versus here? Um, yeah, there's a really strong sense of community over, over there. I mean, there is here too in, in different pockets, but over mm-hmm. there, they're, they're very, the, the Indonesian people to make a generalization are, are very re- relational. And, uh, um, yeah, and there's, there's a really st- strong sense of community, uh, within families as well as even outside of families and kind of like a, almost like a village type scenario. Okay. And, uh, um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're developing, they're developing nation in some places they're, they're, you know, they're just basically a, a first world city in okay. different cities in, in Indonesia. So it's, there's, uh, um, it's an, it's an island nation. And so there's a lot of different cultures. I mean, you know, in Papua, there's 260 different languages. Yeah, that's well, crazy. We're all over Indonesia. There's probably, I'm, I, I don't know the exact number, but there's a lot of different languages in, in, in Indonesia. Yeah. Representing a lot of different cultures. And a lot of the major main islands kind of have their own general feel, feel to it. Mm-hmm. And so um, the island that we're on is Papua. And then like, there's another island west of us called Makassar. Or okay. Silowesi, Makassar is the main town. And then there's there's Java and Sumatra, and they're all they're all very different their yeah. cultures, but they're but so far from what we've seen is they're very relational, probably even maybe more so than Americans. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, the um, it's funny because, um, I mean, since my dad started the company in uh, 2000, like one of the first coffees that he started getting in was the Papua New Guinea, uh, but it's the other side of the island, and so. Um, like I've always thought of it as like, like a, as a coffee place and stuff like that. But then we we have other missionary friends that um, have gotten assigned and they're going there. But they're yeah again they're going to Papua, not the other side. So I was like, okay, so what's on the other <laughs> side? So how much uh, connection do you guys have with the other side of the island and stuff like that? We we don't have much. Um, you can go across the border. It's not super easy, but um, yeah, we don't really have a lot of connection with with Papua New Guinea. Yeah. I mean, in, interior in Papua is very similar to the interior of Papua New Guinea, but we we live kind of in a coastal town, and it's it's probably a little more Indonesian than than uh, than what Papua New Guinea. Yeah, it's, it's it's kind of an Indonesian culture basically in that in that little coastal town. Okay, 
but we do have quite a bit of coffee in the Highlands. It's, it's really quite good. Okay. And so, yeah, we, uh, um, but it's, and it's all organic because they can't really fly in pesticides. Yeah. And so it's all pretty much natural. Nice. Yep. Very cool. And so do, are there lo- a lot of local coffee farms in there that do that? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot, lot, lot of local coffee farms in, uh, in, in the Highlands of Papua. Yeah. Okay. They normally, they normally dry it in the Highlands and then they bring it down to the city to sell. And, and I think most of it's sold like in Java. Okay. Cool. So do you guys, are you guys able to buy it there? And uh, do you guys buy like green beans or do you, or do you buy from our local roastery? Yeah, no, I, we buy, um, we just get green beans from the village. Okay. And so normally what'll happen is just, you know, there's be a bulk, bulk buyer coming in and we just kind of get the tailings of it. So yeah. usually about one or two kilos or somewhere in there. Nice. And then uh, it lasts for probably at least nine months or longer. Yeah. Yeah. And how, so do you, how do you guys end up roasting it then? Uh, I've got a popcorn, uh, like, a, like a little whirly pop. Yep. And I just, yeah, I basically throw like about 300 grams in there and then just kind of low, low, medium heat and, and just stir it until it starts smoking and then cool it off. Nice. <laughs> Very cool. That's awesome. Um, so, um, so how long are you guys going to be in the States for this round then? Yeah, we're hoping to go back in, uh, um, in, in July of this year. Okay. That's our plan. Yeah, we, right now we're applying for a new visa to go back. Okay. And so, uh, yeah, that's that's our hope. Nice. Has that been difficult with everything, all the changes with COVID and everything? Has that been difficult to get visas and travel and all that stuff? Yeah, it has been. Um, right now there's a quarantine. So when you go back into Indonesia, you have to quarantine um, at a facility for, <clears throat> I think right now it's five days. But it's been, it's kind of been flexing between five and ten days. Okay. And so... Um, yeah, we, 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 at this point, it looks like we'll probably have to quarantine when we get back into Jakarta and then, uh, um, yeah, and, and all that, yeah. Okay, cool. So then um, do you guys have an idea of what, how long you guys are planning on staying in this next time? Um, yeah, well, we don't, uh, yeah, pro- we, we plan on maybe three to four years this next time. That's the, that's the current plan. Okay, nice. And at this point, like, that's really your home, and is that kind of your just – Planning on continuing going back and forth and, and living there long term? Yeah, that's our plan. I mean, the I mean, there's a there's a school there that our kids can graduate high school from, and and uh, yeah, that's our current plan. We can stay. We'd like to stay there as long as we can, but you just you know you just never know what the future holds. Yeah, yeah, that's. Uh, I feel like within the world of missions in general, it's like things just change so drastically in a in an instant. Oh yeah. Um, and so we've seen that many times with some of our friends as well. Mm-hmm. So. Awesome. And then so, um, yeah, so you guys are just continuing to do that and stay there long term then? Yeah, that's that's the plan. Yeah, the, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, as long as our health stays good and, and, and Papua stays peaceful and they give us visas, yeah, we'd, we'll go back. Yep. Nice. <laughs> Very cool. Well, I like to end every podcast with some rapid fire questions. So the first one is, what purchase of $100 or less have you enjoyed the most in the last three months? Let's see. I got a cold brew coffee coffee maker oh nice and yeah a couple months ago it was pretty good nice yeah i mean i never really had cold brew before but okay my wife introduced me to it and it's it's pretty amazing stuff yeah (laughs) well especially if you have some of those hotter days and hot coffee is not always great (laughs) yeah yeah all right um who is the most influential person outside of your family in your life um i'd I'd have to say it was probably the um he was the he started the flight school at mada and he was my my primary flight instructor mike kroll and he, uh, he introduced me into the world of aviation, and he kind of helped guide me along to how to get the training and experience needed to become, you know, a missionary pilot mechanic. Yeah. Nice. Very cool. Um, okay. <clears throat> so uh, answer, fill in the blank in this question. Um, I know this is weird, but I've always wanted to blank. 
Oh, yeah. I think it'd be fun to, like, fly into some country or some city in Eastern Europe and then take a train or multiple trains to England. Nice. Go through the channel. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. All right. Who's an interesting or fascinating person that I should interview next? Uh, I think you should interview Derek Fekis with Roots. Okay. Nice. All right. Um, what piece of advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Uh, I'd say sell the Toyota Tacoma and buy some Amazon stock. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Brandon. All right. And Islanders, I will talk to you on the next one. Well, a big thank you to Josh Harrington for joining me on the podcast today, and thank you for listening. If you want to support Josh Harrington and his family and what they're doing, you can go to the show notes of this podcast and click on the link to help support them. Thanks for listening and see you next time.